This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know it, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Nice. I remember singing that song as a child. And I always wondered uh, just how I might carry around this little light without, like, spilling it or something, you know? And, and we teach that song to our preschool, and they love singing it too. And one of the little boys asked, well, how do I, how do I carry my light and play ball at the same time? <laughs> you know, uh, later on in my life, uh, I, I thought that maybe just having Christian things on or around me, like, like wearing, wearing my cross. I got it on tonight, in fact. Or, or the fish on the car. Has anybody seen those? And all the little modifications thereof. Uh, would automatically identify me as someone special, right? It was going to identify me uh, as a Jesus follower. It would make me appear different. And and that would carry the light for me, you see. I have something else besides my little light to to show others who I am. And uh, that that would compel people to want to do that too. That I might be evangelistic by having that on my car. And I'm not going to lie, having, having Pastor Nate on my license plate, <laughs> for those of you who've seen it, <laughs> it does make me think twice about the way that I drive <laughs> and the way that I interact with other drivers. <laughs> but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in this particular passage of Scripture. Do you? Jesus combines the image of salt, a city on a hill, and light. To make a point. And in, and in those days, those kinds of images were really important. I mean, apart from its obvious role of, as a flavoring for food or, or as a preservative, salt was seen as a purifying or a cleansing agent. It would have been added to sacrifices that they offered on the altar there. They'd put the salt in there or even a whole bowl of salt next to it. It was used in candle wax to brighten a flame. Did you know that? Pretty interesting. And here's one that I learned. It was actually used to enhance the efficiency of a baking oven. Salt was very, very useful. It was recognized also as a basic human need. Our bodies have salt in it. We need salt. And I tell you what, uh, coming from the desert in Arizona, which is where I grew up, all of our first aid kits had a tube of salt pellets in it. You just didn't go without them because if you got dehydrated, if you sweated a lot, if you lost a lot of salt, you could die. Interesting, though, this, uh, the same basic human need uh, if it's in a too great a quantity, will kill you. Too much salt will kill you. Too much salt can render the ground useless for growing anything. We live in unincorporated Elmhurst, which means that we have no sidewalks, right? So we all have this cute little brown strip along the edges of our yards from the snow plows and the salt trucks where nothing will grow. So salt has this capacity to benefit in very fundamental ways, right? Now, do you suppose, moving on to that community on the hill, uh, that if a community wanted to remain a quiet little hamlet, a little uh, solitude getaway, that they would build it on a hill? Probably not. A city built on a hill is a really assertive move. 
It's kind of this bold, I want to be important move. It's, it's, uh, it's got this desire to have a wider influence because it's on the hill. It has a better defensive position up on the hill. It can be seen from all around. Look at that city on the hill, right? And then you have light. Light in those days was, uh, uh, beyond the light of the sun, uh, somewhat of a luxury. And it would have been provided by a little terracotta oil lamp. And it would have been small enough that you could carry it around the house, yet... Um, since most of the homes were one room back then, they would have put it on a stand in a centrally located place to provide light for the whole room. So to light a lamp and put a basket over it would make no sense at all. Almost as much sense as building a city on a hill and thinking no one would see it, that no one could find you. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus is calling his followers to have influence out in the world where they lived. But what kind of influence is it? Is it an influence charged by banners and and billboards and fish on your car and propaganda and force? Or is it something more subtle, something deeper, yet something bold? The prophet Jeremiah spoke about two different ways that we can be human here in God's world that he created. This world where darkness is so prevalent. He said this. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert In a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. These are two very different pictures of how to live out our lives here on this earth. One way is self-focused, self-referenced. And the other is God-focused. And Christ referenced. And in the spiritual formation circles, they call that a false self versus a true self. Now, I've spent some time over these past couple years with the Transforming Center uh, doing some work around the false self and the true self. Uh, And it's a a journey that I have to confess has been (laughs) a really difficult journey. And sometimes a painful journey because you realize just how often that I live in that false self zone. And and the more you become aware of it, the more painful it becomes. But it's a place that you have to go in order to find your way toward the true self. I desperately want to be like that tree planted by the water. But because of my own heart and because of the incredible pressure this world puts on us, I mean, just turn on the TV once and watch the commercials. This is all stuff you ought to have because you can be important, good-looking, influential if you buy it, right? 
causes me to naturally gravitate toward the bush and the wastelands. And I find myself there all too often. Now, Robert Mulholland, uh, a spiritual writer, uh, in his book, The Deeper Journey, describes his first awareness of the difference between these two selves. And he says, As a fairly young Christian, I thought of repentance for my sins in terms of being sorry for the things I had done. Who can identify with that? Repentance, being sorry for the things I've done. He said, I was really sincerely sorry, yet kept doing the same things over and over again. That's something I can relate to. (laughs) Andy Morgan, he used to work here. He would relate to that. He'd say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Right? Mulholland goes on and he says, Then I heard a wise teacher say, Repentance is not being sorry for the things you have done, but being sorry that you are the kind of person that does such things. Oh my gosh. That just pierces right at the heart. And with that, I began the disturbing discovery of my false self. I began to realize that underneath the thin veneer of my religiosity lived a pervasive and deeply entrenched self-referenced being which was driven by its own agendas, its own desires, its own purposes, and that no amount of superficial tinkering with the religious facade made any appreciable difference. That was Bob Mulholland speaking. Now to me, that sounds like a a lot like what Paul was writing to the Romans in chapter 8 when he's talking about life according to the flesh. He wrote... Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires, self-focused. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, God-focused. The mind of the sinful man is death, self-focused. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace, God-focused. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Cannot. So, what are some of the characteristics of the false self, according to Robert Mulholland? He says that the false self is a fearful self. So often when we introduce ourselves to somebody, we introduce ourselves by letting them know what we do. Because that's where we find our identity. What do you do? That's a normal question to ask, right? Not who are you? What do you do? And then we make a judgment call based on the occupation they throw back at us, right? So we lead with what we do in hopes of gaining some sort of credibility. The false self is is fearful because it's rooted in performance. Once a year, you get written up as to whether you did okay or not. And whether you get to still work there or not. The false self is fearful because... All of this drives you to a desire for competence and confidence and ultimately to control because if you have control, you can handle those other things. And actually, this fear drives you to anger. The false self is also protective. It relies on its own resources. And don't ask me how. I'm not going to show you. I'm not going to tell you because they're mine, not yours. It builds networks of relationships and resources and information 
in order to protect and to enhance the identity. The false self is possessive. Possessions serve to protect your identity. What I've got tells you how influential I have. The person who dies with the most toys wins, right? The false self is manipulative. I and my family always deserve what I perceive to be the very best, and I will go to great lengths and ask for special privileges, even twist the truth if necessary, to make sure they get them. I know it's past the deadline, but you can get my child in there, can't you? I know you can. The false self is also destructive. And in God's economy, Scripture says it's possible for a false self to gain the whole world, yet lose your soul. A false self is self-promoting because they're desperate to appear valuable and productive and important. And the side effect for that is blame. When something doesn't go right, instead of saying, yep, me, it's like, he did it. It's quick to blame. It's easy to blame someone else, something else, the circumstances, the clock, not enough hours in a day. False self, self-promoting also asks the question, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? A false self is also indulgent. I remember a TV commercial about a guy who goes to a carnival, right? It's like Taste of Chicago, and he runs from booth to booth eating everything he possibly can in sight because it's there and because it's fun. And then he's sitting down under a tree with a stomach that's sticking out, miserable from the experience. And what's the answer? Not, not modifying the behavior, but the medication you can pick up that makes you feel better so you can just continue on your way. <laughs> Indulgent. And the false self is distinctive, distinction-making. A false self will categorize others at sight to protect their own identity. We do it. I do it. I do it all the time. I find myself in that, in that self-reference zone far more often than I care to admit. In fact, just today, <laughs> I drove past a sign that advertised an estate sale. Now, my first thought was not about how sad that must be for the family and the ramifications of needing an estate sale. My first thought was, should I stop and see if there's a deal in there for me? <laughs> I think of times in the grocery store, standing there, you know, they have those new checkout aisles where you do it yourself, so it's faster. And undoubtedly, you get behind somebody who's never done this before or maybe shouldn't be doing that. And they're staring at the screen and pushing at the buttons and instead of stepping up and saying, can I be helpful, what do I do? You start tapping the toe, looking at the watch. What's wrong with this guy? What's their problem? Rather than having compassion, I make a judgment. What kind of idiot is this? Or at home maybe, where there are suddenly three children running around the corner, causing a commotion, clamoring for your attention. Right at the moment that I'm paying attention to one of my really important electronic devices. Can't you see I'm busy? Don't you care that I'm doing something over here? We all do it. But interestingly enough for Paul, he could deal with that. His gripe was 
with what we call the religious false self. He, in his economy, that was the worst kind of false self. The false self with a, a religious veneer of practices and routines that gives one perceived credibility and piety. He's speaking perhaps of those who come faithfully on Sunday but put their faith away in a closet or in their pocket during the week only to, to kind of drag it out when it serves them well or helps them in a situation. Or perhaps he's speaking of, of those who lean so hard into the doing of religious practices that they completely miss the redemptive nature of our relationship with God and what it's supposed to mean for our relationship with others. He called those people Pharisees. We could actually put all the categories from the false self slide that we saw and fill in the blanks from a religious perspective, and it all would apply. And Paul understood that because his own testimony betrays him. He says, if anyone else think he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He got it. He understood what a religious false self meant. Doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Self-focused. As a religious false self, he was being in the world for God. When we choose to be in the world for God, we're working from a self-referenced position. Unfortunately, I, I know what that feels like too. I can think of times where I've put the suit on before I go to the hospital because it makes me look more like a pastor instead of going there just like this because the person needs me now. The religious false self starts with our agenda. We construct for ourselves this box that we put God in. And all of our per per sorry, perceptions and all of our per preferences. And then we might read a lot. Believing that if we understand God better, then we can find out how to fit God into our lives on our terms. Then we add to it our schedule. We'll shop for a church that fits our lifestyle. We'll fill our lives with those performance-oriented activities. The Bible studies, volunteer opportunities, retreats, accountability groups, all good things, but with the motive of not necessarily drawing closer to God, but to prove we're super disciples. And we want to have control. Perhaps we'll seek positions of power and prestige within the body of the church in order to assert our agenda because we know what the church needs. We'll insist on our own agenda and say that it's God's. How often have you heard that one? We'll expect that newcomers to the faith should worship like we do, dress like we do, think the way we think, instead of us leading them to a transformational relationship with God face-to-face. So for this religious false self, we control our relationship with God instead of God having dominion over our lives. Now Jesus spoke about that. He talked about those who cling to a religious false self. He spoke about those who strive to be in the world for God according to their own motives. Just a couple chapters later in Matthew, he says, not 
everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So what this says to me is, is if I truly desire to live into Jesus' command to become salt, light, and a city on a hill. If I truly want to be a person of influence for the kingdom, not for myself, then it's probably not some cosmic to-do list that we can just check off. I have to figure out how to throw off this false self and lean hard into the true self God has created me to be. Unfortunately, it seems that every time I open my mouth, my false self comes jumping out. If you look right at the beginning of the Bible, right in the book of Genesis, it says there, let us make humankind in our own image. Right? That's what God said. And right after that it says, and God created humankind in God's own image. Male and female, God created them. Friends, that's an amazing reality. We carry the very image of God from the moment of our creation. Now, Paul offers kind of a radical image of this true self, imago Dei, image of God, in Ephesians. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Wow. <laughs> How often do you think of your life as being immersed in blessing? Immersed. I mean, regularly. It's kind of like how a fish lives, immersed in water. Our lives are immersed in blessing. So if we're aware at the gut level, at that knee-jerk level of our carrying the image of God and our immersed life in blessing, then the true self lives in a zone where the agenda becomes God's agenda. Where the schedule doesn't matter because it's God's schedule where we relinquish the control that we've got to have because God is in control. And we find that God is at the center of all of our relationships. It isn't about being in the world for God. It's about being in God for the world. Let me say that again. It's not about being in the world for God. It's about being in God for the world. Do you see the paradigm shift? Paul said of Jesus in Colossians, he said, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then he prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that you, meaning all of us, may be filled with all the fullness of God. Peter wrote, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. And escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Participate 
in the divine nature. It's possible. And Jesus himself prayed in the garden saying, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Back to our original scripture before I go on. What does it say? In that same way, let your light shine that they may see and praise your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus prayed for. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So our true selves being in God for the world is a radically other-referenced love, a radically non-self-referenced way of being in God for the world. Thomas Kelly wrote a great book called A Testament of Devotion, and, and in there he writes, he plucks the world out of our hearts, loosening the chains of the attachment, and then he hurls the world back into our hearts where we and he together carry it infinitely in tender love. I like that image. Partnering with God to carry the world in tender love that changes every relationship you have. Paul wrote to Philippians, he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So how do we do it? We're running out of time. But I want to say that uh, Paul suggests something really good. Here's what he says. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love that. Wrapped up, hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. I tell wedding couples, Clothe yourselves. It means it's an intentional thing. 
just like you pick your clothes for the day. You pick it for a reason. Clothe yourselves. Put it on. You have to do it. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Everybody, not just the people you want to forgive. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? I couldn't have said it better myself. Trappist monk uh, Thomas Merton If you like dense reading, he's got a great book called uh, Contemplation in a World of Action. And and I love this quote from the book, and I put it on the front of your worship folder for you to take home with you. It says, uh, in light of what Paul just said, one's great need is now no longer to be loved, understood, accepted, pardoned, but to understand, to love, to pardon, and to accept others just as they are in order to help them transcend themselves in love. And he goes on to say, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they're worthy. That's not our business. And in fact, it's nobody's business. What we are asked to do is love. And this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. I think with that, we become people of influence, don't you? Friends, we have to lean into this way of life if we're to truly live into that life of influence that Jesus has called us to. The command of Jesus does not say, if you are to be salt and light. Rather, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are a city on a hill, and you are the light of the world. It's not optional, and it's not easy. But if we're willing to relinquish control of our relationship with God, we might just be surprised at how amazing it is. Now, if you'd like to read further about this, I really highly recommend the book that I referenced earlier. It's called The Deeper Journey by Robert Mulholland. You see it there. And I know they have a fresh supply of them in the bookstore. Uh, so if you'd like to pick that up, it's, it's a great read. It's, it's a great book. I found it to be very challenging, but a source of great hope for the follower of Christ for the salt and the light that I hope to someday be. Would you stand with me? And I dare you. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.